0: As you're finding that passage, I'd like to observe that the phrase going through the motions describes someone who, for various reasons, is doing something that he or she has either lost interest in or forgotten the reason in the first place. Going through the motions. Just going through the motions. And This is a problem for some of you. Uh, Will prayed for our students. If you're enrolled in a class, in a class this semester, and you see absolutely no reason for this class, you might show up to the class, but you are just going through the motions. It's also not unusual to see this sort of attitude for someone who's in a job Maybe one that you've been in for a long time. You know the job almost instinctively at this point. You can sort of do it. It's on autopilot. You know, like, you can almost close your eyes and you'd wind up in your same parking spot every single morning. This also happens to some couples in marriages. Uh, The saying, that I often tell my brothers in Christ, don't stop dating your wife. What's behind that is a reminder that we can't just go through the motions in our relationships. And of course, it can be an issue in our religious lives as well, in your relationship with God. Particularly in a secular society, it's easy to lose Your way spiritually to forget why you're going to church to forget to go to church to read your Bible and to not remember five minutes later anything that you read in the sacred word your faith can quickly become stale or go on autopilot and this is one major reason that we exist as a church Mercy Hill is because of people's tendency for worldly cares, and even your own sinful nature, your sinful hearts. They tend to take God and holy things for granted. So our mission as a church is to help you know and believe what's true and what's best about God and about yourselves. In fact, our mission statement is helping people thrive in Christ. It's the very opposite of just going through the motions but helping people means we can't do it for you means we can help you but you've got to make a decision you've got to wake up you've got to recognize that the church is an asset a resource a God-given tool to help you not just go through the motions but to truly to thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, why are you here this morning? Is your life on autopilot? What are you expecting from God today? What are you expecting from the sermon? Do you really want to know more about who Jesus is? And what he has done for you. Do you want to become a more faithful disciple today? Of all the things that you could be doing, and trust me, in in modern day, there are plenty of options on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock besides this. Do you want to experience more of God in your life? Do you are you tired of your sin? And how it keeps stealing from you? How you feel. When you look in the mirror and that habitual, addictive, repetitive downfall, Achilles' heel, once again, got the better of you. Do you want to have better tools in your life, heavenly tools, divine tools, to face the challenges and struggles that come your way? When you hit the wind and the waves, you know how it is, you're going through your day and everything's going good, it's 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and then you get a phone call, text, email, or meet someone in some situation, and everything goes from great to horrible. Do you want to manage those sorts of unexpected, predictably unpredictable things that just take the wind out of our sails? Do you want to do better at that? If you're already a follower of Jesus, can you honestly say that you're growing at the moment, or has your faith plateaued? maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you're sort of, you know, dipping your toe into the water, testing it out. What is this Christianity business? These all are questions, I think, worth asking this morning as we begin a special two-week series on our mission and vision as a church. Our mission will be the focus this week our big purpose, helping people thrive in Christ, is our mission statement. And then next week, our vision is how we as leaders and how you as members in, envision this mission bearing fruit in our life as a congregation in the coming years. I've mentioned our mission statement. I'll say it again, helping people thrive in Christ. It's, it's, it's based on a number of really important Bible verses found throughout the scriptures but there is no verse more important for our mission statement than the text that's before us this morning it's john 15 in this passage jesus is having a conversation with his disciples it's known as the upper room discourse and it begins at john 13 and ends with the longest recorded prayer of jesus in the bible in john chapter 17 it's sometimes known as his high priestly prayer and in John 15, we're right in the middle of this upper room discourse. And the last verse of chapter 14 tells us that Jesus has departed from the upper room. He's, he's left to go. He says, come, let us go from here. So perhaps in this part of the conversation that Jesus is having with his 11 disciples, Judas is already left to betray him. Perhaps they're on their way to Gethsemane and they're walking and Jesus is talking with his disciples. It's night. And in this part of the upper room discourse, Jesus chooses a word, an image, an extremely vivid image, to describe himself in his ministry, and that is the image of a vine. That's right, a vine. He calls himself the true vine, in fact, And that's my sermon title, The True Vine. What does Jesus mean by this? And what does it have to do with our church and our church's mission statement? What does it have to do with with your life and your faith and your relationship with God? I hope this morning that if you are a born-again follower of Jesus, that this morning's message will help renew or rekindle your growth and love, growth in God and love for God. If you stop growing as a Christian, in other words, today's the day that you can start growing again. That's good news. If you've never grown as a Christian, if you're not yet a believer in God, then today's the day. Today might be the day for you to experience salvation for the first time. So let's begin by reading God's Word. And asking him to bless the ministry of preaching. We believe that in, in faithful preaching, Jesus speaks to his church. So let's ask him to do that. First, I'll read the text John 15, and I'm going to read down through verse 8, verses 1 through 8 of John 15. The eternal word of God I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, just as you spoke to your holy apostles in this uh, remarkable time in history, in this passage which we have recorded for us by, by John, speak to us again. Your words are Life and you even refer to your words in this reading, that we are clean because of the word that you have spoken to us. So Lord, speak to us again, cleanse us again, renew our minds, open our ears, soften our hard hearts, that we might be changed, in Jesus' name, amen. The true vine, my first point, has a dramatic background It has a dramatic background. Now here I'm gonna gonna make a plug for reading the whole Bible. Because I certainly knew nothing about the dramatic background of the true vine the first time I read the Gospel of John, my first day as a new believer in college. I was a freshman. And as, as a new believer, I remember the morning I woke up, it says, I need to read the word. So I read the Gospel of John in the first week as a new believer, once a day, every day I read the whole Gospel of John and I couldn't believe it. Every time I read John, I got something new out of it. I'd I'd read it the day before and the next day's reading felt like I hadn't read it at all. It was so fresh and new to me. But even after reading John five days in a row, I still didn't understand the dramatic background here. And so I'm gonna share that with you to help you appreciate what Jesus is talking about. What does he mean when he says, I am the true vine? The, the answer is, Jesus is speaking of something that all of his hearers, the, the disciples, would have immediately understood. If, if I said, and one pastor who is preaching on this text uses this as an illustration, if I said, stars and stripes, if you're a citizen of the United States, you know what I'm talking about. Old glory, the flag. But if you have no context with American tradition, you might not appreciate or even know what the stars and stripes point to. It's the same way with the true vine. When Jesus refers to the vine, any Jew and certainly any of his 11 disciples here would have absolutely understood what he was talking about. God's chosen people in the Old Testament. This is a dramatic background. Like if you don't know that, you're going to miss a lot of the meaning, the heavy meaning, the laden meaning here in this story. We can see God's chosen people in the Old Testament in three great movements of the Bible. The first one, I'll call it redemption or the exodus. The first time the people of God are referred to as a vine or a plant is when God is rescuing his enslaved people from Egypt. Their rescue from slavery is expressed in terms of a removal, a digging up from an inhospitable place where they're struggling and a transplanting of them to a new place, a garden which God has prepared for them in the land of Canaan by weeding out all of the pagan peoples that lived there a land flowing with milk and honey from a from slavery to freedom from struggling scrawny plant to a thriving fruit bearing vine and we see this in exodus 15 i think i have some scripture for the screen on this one you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So vine would evoke in the disciples' mind the great work of God in in liberation, in exodus, in deliverance. As a redeemed and transplanted people, the expectation was, and every benefit was given to them, that they would bear fruit for God. Vine, then, is a symbol, a metaphor, for God's design and command that the people of his possession, his chosen people, would live and dwell in the land and be fruitful and multiply. That's the first Part of the dramatic background and you'll agree with me that's that's rich drama but this phrase be fruitful and multiply which I just use points to another important significant one of the top three most important moments in the Bible and that's not just redemption but going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in creation you see The redemption from Egypt isn't the first time vine and growth and fruit-bearing is mentioned in Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply was first spoken in the Bible's first chapter, in Genesis chapter 1. God has created man and woman. The creation mandate was given to our first parents. They were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Here's Here's the actual passage. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So fruitfulness and multiplication, even though vine isn't mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, fruitfulness and multiplication are are baked in or hardwired to the very nature of creatures made in God's image. We might think of Adam and Eve in the garden as vine dressers themselves, as vines in the garden of God. Eden was the perfect paradise garden. Prepared for them. God placed them in the garden. He gave them every advantage. Sound familiar? So if we were to switch the order and think about it in, in sequence, we have a garden prepared for man in which he might bear fruit and spread it to the ends of the earth. A man failed in that task and was excluded from the garden. And man eventually finds himself in bondage in Egypt and God then sees, remembers, his covenant of creation and reaches down and rescues an enslaved people and prepares another garden for them, this one larger and broader in scope. And gives them every advantage and places them in a paradise garden called Canaan. And calls them to do what Adam and Eve were to do in the first place. And they failed again at this task of being the vine of God. We have a little picture of this in Psalm 80, which I have on the screen here. You brought a vine out of Egypt... You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river." What a, what a dramatic picture of a flourishing, thriving, righteous, holy people filling the earth with the good produce of God, children and crops, and righteous living. So creation, redemption, two great themes, two great movements, dramatic movements in Scripture. But the third, and I've hinted at it already, The third points to the fact that every single time God has called us to be his vines and placed us in his garden, we have failed to do so. The third dramatic theme here is judgment. And this is the third great section of the Bible. We have creation, we have redemption, and starting around the kings and certainly by the time of the prophets, The entire rest of the Bible speaks to exile and judgment. In fact, with these three words, you can entirely comprehend all of the 39 books of the Old Testament creation, redemption, and exile. Each time you see that vine is mentioned outside of Genesis and Exodus, it's mentioned in the negative terms. I called you to be a vine. Where is the fruit that you have promised to give me? I have prepared for you a garden. How have you defiled my sanctuary with your idolatry? Over and over and over again, the vine is, is, is evoked by the prophets as a harbinger of God's judgment and wrath to a disobedient and wayward people who were perfectly situated to glorify God and took those privileges and all those advantages and threw them away like so much of yesterday's trash. So Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become... A wild vine or Hosea 10 Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit the more his fruit increased the more righteousness he 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 worked the more love compassion and mercy he showed to the alien and the stranger the more the more worship he rendered to me no the more his fruit increased the more altars to foreign gods he built we took the very produce of God and co-opted it and corrupted it to build altars to pagan deities. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. And a pillar is a symbol of false worship. And so, on behalf of the Lord, Hosea says, their heart, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars And destroy their pillars and allow his vine to be ravaged by the nations in exile. So to review, vine means redemption. We see that as God redeems his people and plants them in Canaan in the Exodus. But vine even earlier than that points to creation. You see the Exodus is kind of a a, a retelling of the story of creation on larger scale. The original purpose for man was to populate the earth with image-bearers and to fill the earth with God-glorifying things, ideas, creations. And finally, Vine points to judgment and exile because God's chosen people did not and still do not at times bear the fruit, shine the light, if I can change the metaphor, to shine the light of God in the world, but we use our belongings and we use our gifts for idolatry. And so God disciplines and judges his people. He leaves us, he leaves them or abandons them to our sin and misery that we might return to him. That's the dramatic background of the vine now if you knew that if you knew the background of the vine and you're a follower of Jesus your heart is singing right now but if you didn't know that I hope you are filled with wonder and awe at our Lord's teaching which begins with this Statement, I am the true vine. What could he mean by this? Now that we understand the the dramatic background, what does this expression mean? Jesus, I am the true vine. In John's gospel, Jesus is saying he is the perfect vine. The perfect expression of the vine. That's what he means by true vine. It it has two aspects to it. Not only was Israel, the son of God, disobedient to God's commandment, bearing fruit of wickedness, wild grapes is how the prophets describe it. No, no, no. Jesus, the son of God, is bearing fruit for God his entire life. He never sinned even once. In thought, word, and deed, he always did what pleased God. He He knew what was good, loved what was good, and did what was good. He is the vine that God had in mind all along. He's the vine that that Adam should have been, so he's a new Adam. He's the vine that Israel, that is to say, Jacob and his sons should have been, that is to say, Jesus is the new Israel. He doesn't replace Adam, he doesn't replace Israel, he fulfills Adam, what Adam should have been the whole time. He fulfills Israel, what Israel is the Son of God, the Chosen of God, should have been the whole time. You see, Israel was a vine, just not the true vine. To illustrate this, one pastor explained it like a famous work of art. Just, we'll pick one of my favorites, Van Gogh's Starry Night. Turns out in a, a Hobby Lobby you can buy a kit to make Starry Night for $28. <laughs> that might be fun. But the real Starry Night is hanging in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's not saying that the vines that came before him were no vines. He's saying that he is the ultimate vine, the perfect vine, the fulfillment of all the little vines' destiny that that they should have, could have, would have if they did. But there's more to Jesus being the true vine. I've explained how he's the true vine in creation, Adam, and in redemption, Israel, Exodus. What was that third movement? Jesus is the true vine in judgment. You see, he is the Adam that never was. He did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was tempted thrice in the wilderness. And each time he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And when Satan came to Eve and Adam, he said, did God really say? And they said, huh, maybe he didn't. So how can it be that Jesus finds himself hanging on a criminal's cross Crying out, my God, my God, I am the true vine. Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, he's not just the vine in creation and the vine in redemption, but he's the vine in judgment, wrath, and exile. He experiences the breaking down and the crumbling of the walls of the vineyard in his body as he's broken on the cross. He experiences the abandonment of God as the wrath of God is poured out on him. All who pass by pluck the fruit of Christ because there's no one to guard the vineyard, you see. He's been forsaken of God. Listen again to to Psalm 80, 14 to 18. Turn again, O God of hosts, is the prayer of the psalmist. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. And he's speaking of himself, but, but notice how the scope widens. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. When you do that for him, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Here we have in Psalm 80 a prophecy of Christ. Veiled and Conveyed in the image of a vine in a vineyard that has been destroyed and then rescued through resurrection. Just hinted at in this passage. So we've seen the dramatic background to the vine image in John 15. You've also now understood the first verse, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all the vines that had preceded him. My final point is application. What is its significance for you and me, for us as a church? First of all, you need to know that there is no relationship with your creator apart from Jesus. No religion, no rule, no way of life, no order, no idea, no book, no philosophy will get you to God, which is the purpose of human existence, to be in communion, union and communion with God. There is no other way to God but through Jesus, divine. No other way. What it means to be born again is to leave behind all of those philosophies, all of those religious orders, all of those pathways of salvation and self-justification which you have been working on as so much trash and cling to Christ because only in Jesus can you find your heart's desire which is union and communion with the God who made you. That's by far the most important application of this morning's message. But second, if you have a relationship with God in Christ, that relationship is, is described in our passage as one of the most intimate kinds. It's a branch in a vine. It's the exchange of life. It's not just some words you say. It's not just a building you go to. It's a living, breathing, personal, intimate connection with the ascended Christ who is the vine of God. Anything less than that. You are falling short of what God intends for you. You are not experiencing, as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, as a student, as a husband, a wife, in your job, in this church. You are not experiencing what God has in mind for you. Third, You cannot have a relationship with Jesus on your own. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. The only Christianity that is known by Jesus is a Christianity which involves the body of Christ, the church. And if you think that you can... Hack your way through the jungle of this fallen world with the mere profession of faith and no real connection to a group of people called the church, some expression of the visible church, you are sorely mistaken. You believed a lie. The vitality that, that God designs and that you crave may only be found in the church of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is preached. He is high and lifted up. Fourth, Salvation is not the point. Salvation is not the point. I'm smiling because I wonder if some of you are surprised at this. No, the point is fruit bearing. You're in the vine so you can bear fruit, so you can accomplish the mission of God in your life and in the world. He's prepared a garden for you and he's provided a vine for you and he's united you to his son Jesus Christ so that you might be saved in order that you might bear fruit for God. Fruitful Christians are the only Christians that the Bible knows because if you're vitally united to the vine, you will bear fruit because that's what Jesus does with his people. And the fruit of God, as it was in Genesis, as it was in Canaan, it is today in the church, is to fill the earth with the glory of God in every sphere, in music and in art, in science and in literature, in politics, believe it or not. In the daytime and at nighttime, on sacred Sundays and secular weekdays, the glory, the resplendent, radiant, fruitful glory of God in your family and as an unmarried person in every aspect of our lives, glorifying and enjoying God forever. And notice Jesus says in our passage that you are already clean. But some of you need cleaning. It's the same word in in the original, pruning and cleaning. It's the same word. So a vine dresser cleans the vine when he takes the shears in in his hands and clips it, which is painful. So in sequence, in order for you to glorify God and to bear fruit, you must be cleaned. You who already are cleaned. You must be pruned. You who already are in the vine. He knows what's best for you. He's the farmer. He's the master vine dresser. Pruning means suffering. Pruning means sickness. Pruning means loss and trials of many kinds. But God does not take pleasure in your pain. He is not a masochist. He is an artist. And he is working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through various and many trials. Paul put it like this, Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That spirit is the subject of John 14 for your reflection this afternoon. Read John 14 and read about the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete that is poured out into our hearts that enables us to endure the pruning of the Father who is the Vine Dresser, as he further perfects And polishes your testimony to the glory of God through various trials. And my final point is that prayer and the word are central to our identity as branches in the vine. That's why he says ask whatever you will in my name. You see, if you're bearing fruit for God and vitally attached to the vine and His Word has made you clean and you're dwelling on His Word and you're like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whatever He does prospers and whatever you ask, you will receive because the Father loves to hear His Word prayed back to Him by fruit-bearing Christians who bear His image and glory in the world. I'm afraid that in order to thrive in Christ we need to renew our commitment individually and as a church to the word and to prayer. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Let us pray. Father, as we conclude our time in your word we thank you for what you've taught us how you've moved us challenged us and encouraged us We thank you that in faith we are already clean. (laughs) But we have have work to do in order to accomplish our mission, which is to thrive in Christ. So may you renew our determination to be people of the book, people of the word, people of the gospel, and people of prayer. And this we pray, Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.